Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Plot Devices. Episode 11 is here. We have officially made it past our Dectennial. Can we survive more? I don't know. It's Halloween. Things are weird. This is also the only Halloween special podcast that is not a Halloween theme. You're welcome if you hate the holiday. I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Samantha Incorvaya. Sam, how are you doing on this uh, Halloween non-special? Yeah, I am excited. I'm I, I'm sure that with our topics, we're going to make it special either way. So everyone's in for a trick-or-treat, I'm sure. <laughs> Noah is also joining us uh, today. Noah, how are you and your sword doing today? I am dressed to the tens team. I am here. And for any Demon Slayer fans who are listening, just know I am dressed up as Tanjiro for our special, non-special Halloween episode. It's always a special time when us three get together and we have a conversation. Um, But I'm ready to give uh, an incredible show audibly. We have to point out that Noah's wearing this awesome Demon Slayer costume. Like, just shout out to that since we're not doing anything visually just yet. (laughs) And And I committed. I pierced my ears last night. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You didn't have them pierced before that? No. (laughs) He really did commit, guys. Yeah. yeah. See, like I said, trick-or-treats everywhere. (laughs) We also need to mention Sam's excellent uh, free guy cosplay. Yeah, I'm dressed up for those that obviously can't see. I'm dressed up as a Molotov girl. So I'm I'm excited about it. Uh, And this will be great. This will be a good Halloween. Uh, let's move on then to our main topic for today. Uh, our first topic for today, Lightyear, the uh, first of potentially many Pixar Toy Story t- spin-offs. The first trailer released online uh, earlier this past week, and the internet is, of course, having a field day with it, because why wouldn't they? Chris Evans is voicing the titular character this time, taking over from uh, Tim Allen, with the film serving as the in-universe origin story for the character that the toy in Toy Story is based on. Finding Dory co-director Angus McLean will helm the project with a script from Inside Out's Pete Docter, who also currently serves as Pixar's uh, chief creative officer. Lightyear is set to hit theaters on June 17th, 2022. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first. This trailer actually drops just a little under a year after we got the announcement of Lightyear at that whole Disney Investor Day special last year. What were your thoughts going into this? And does this trailer excite you as a potential for Toy Story uh, stories not including the main cast? One of the highlights from Toy Story 2 was that introduction scene where we got Buzz on a mission, traveling to a planet, hunting down Zerg. It's filled with lasers. It's filled with acrobats. It's fit or acrobatics, sorry. And also just space cadet fun that I think can be explored exclusively with a Lightyear movie. I don't think I was as excited about it until I saw the trailer, but the trailer definitely gave me the moment of, wow, like this is really Buzz's world. And I think just as a fan of Toy Story, you know, Toy Story 3 came a decade after Toy Story 2, and that was really a nostalgic moment for me. So just to see if they can pull on those, you know, nostalgia chords with a Lightyear movie, I have no doubt that Chris Evans is going to sell the hell out of this role. I think it's going to be pretty great. Yeah. And just like Noah, actually, I, I wasn't like that jazzed about it because I had a hard time picturing what this was going to be exactly. Uh, and I think some people in the public are still confusing it too, that this is an origin story. It's not the toy anymore. It's, it's like the person that the toy is based off of. And so I, I know that for me, that also confused me at first, but, um, that's what this, this is going to be about. And I'm excited about it because the trailer made me happier and more um, excited to see it. And so I I think that, you know, in the world of Pixar, Toy Story, whatever universe they're in, the toy creators are pretty spot on. I mean, this buzz looks just like the toy. So I think that's pretty cool. Wait, Sam, you literally just defined what this movie is going to be about. So is any kind of alien laser Zergness going to happen? Or is this only Lightyear, the real astronaut you know, Ooh, you know you're gonna call it now i bet that he has some kind of rival named zerg 
I bet in some capacity or shape or form, maybe another rival astronaut, maybe someone on the same mission, just going to call that now. And then the aliens are probably going to be a joke. Like let's throw them in for marketing. Cause I mean, aliens. The, yeah. never mind. I just made the hilarious mistake of thinking that the toy was what this movie was about. Okay. Not the toy, the person. I, and actually that's not a bad theory to almost be like the toy is kind of this weird propagandized version of Zerg. Like there's no way that's actually who it is. That's actually kind of a cool theory. I love Finding Dory. I'm, I'm excited to see what Angus McLean has been doing. He's uh, he's done a lot of short work for Pixar. He did a Toy Story of Terror, the Halloween special. So I'm excited to see what he can do as a primetime director. I worship at the altar of Pete Doctor. So anything he touches, I'm in. And Chris Evans, I think this is a really neat thing. I know that a lot of people have been kind of criticizing the idea of, oh, you know, Tim Allen's conservative. So Disney's just getting rid of him because of that. And I think this kind of only enhances Tim Allen's character because it, it makes him almost a parody of whatever Chris Evans, you know, more serious take, quote unquote, is going to be doing. So I think this can only enhance that character, so to speak. I don't know if this is what I would have taken the direction of Pixar doing, you know, Inside Out sequel, where is that? But you know what? This is exciting. I like the art style of the trailer. I'm in. Let's move on then to our second main topic of the day. In the lead up to Avengers Endgame, again, seemingly every character is restricted to either die off or, you know, retire or some other means of, you know, leaving the MCU. And according to Joe Russo, the co-director of that movie, it could have been much worse than that. Uh, in a recently released book, The Story of the Marvel Studios, which is actually out now, by the way, uh, Russo revealed that Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige actually wanted the original six Avengers killed off during the runtime of Endgame. This is uh, Joe Russo's quote from that book, The Story of Marvel Studios. <clears throat> Kevin's initial pitch was that it was Toy Story 3, a, again, going back to Toy Story. They're all going to jump back into a furnace together concept, reveals Joe Russo. The brother's pushback was that there was no possible way for the story to be able to take the time to celebrate each one of them. And that, for the fans, was an impossible scenario to walk out of the theater and process. Again, if you want to read the entire book, the story of the Marvel Studios, the making of the Marvel Universe, is currently available at all major book retailers. There's a lot to discuss in that people have been breaking down the last few days. Sam, I want to go over to you. Uh, what do you think of this concept? And would you prefer, I should say, Endgame to have killed off the original six with how big the MC was gotten? It's honestly a great question. I I don't know how I would have felt about it because on one hand, you have these Avengers that are getting their spinoff shows like Hawkeye. And, and as we all know, Hawkeye is seemingly like the black sheep at times of the family. So I think this is a really good chance for him to get that spotlight. Had he been dead, would he have something like this? Or would it be another one of those like alternate universe versions of Hawk? I don't know. But it's like, you know, on one hand, I could see that. But on the other, it would be very interesting to see those Avengers dead and then have some new ones from our, you know, like Marvel Cinematic Universe come in as the new Avengers. So I'm not really sure. I could kind of go either way on that. Um, But I don't know at the moment. How about you, Noah? I think... If they had all died, then it. I agree with the point there that one of the Russo brothers made that it would have been a tough feat to try and give them each a proper send off and the right amount of time so that the fans all felt that it was appropriate to say goodbye. I think the way that they're actually doing it and this sort of slower handoff, you know, across multiple movies is much more cleaner and I guess more approachable for a fan even like a devoted fan like myself like it sucks to see some of our favorites go but at least we're getting proper introductions to new and exciting characters and i think that's the right way to do it especially for a franchise that is as long spanned out as marvel is i kind of disagree with him on this like i appreciate the notion of a toy story 3-esque ending for these characters that we've gone through at that point almost a decade with 
But I'm with you, Noah. I would have much preferred to see what we're doing now, which is, you know, the gradual handoff of Hawkeye's mantle to Kate Bishop, whatever is going to be with the She-Hulk thing and wherever Bruce is going to take, whatever Thor is going to be doing, because he has, you know, a dozen other priorities that he has to deal with besides the Avengers, and then killing off the ones that, you know, we did wind up killing off. I think the gradual burn of that is something that the MCU has done so well, and being able to continually focus on that, I think is something that I... I think Kevin would have regretted that. I think if they had done that, they would have gone, well, we can't do the hand up to Kit Bishop because Hawkeye is dead. We can't, you know, look more at gamma radiation because Bruce is dead. And I think that would have just taken away narrative opportunities in favor of just this one-time shock value. So again, I respect the idea, but it's not something I would have been uh, encouraged by. So now my question is, um, as a side note, food for thought, um, I wonder if the third episode of What If was kind of like, inspired by this back-end knowledge that's not a bad theory actually <laughs> i'm just very intrigued by that because it's like you watch that episode and you're like holy cow they all die and it's like i mean th- that's basically what this was kevin so. feige is just obsessed with death and just needed to heal the avengers at some point <laughs> and fitting with our non-theme happy halloween everyone <laughs> yeah. or, or hell maybe he talked to bob Iger and was just like don't you have that what if thing coming up just kill them there and ken was like all right fine like oh fine i'll go with have it. your fun there and then get back to reality you, you like animation <laughs> don't you I, yeah i guess but <laughs> we're playing the whole board meeting right now <laughs> yes. this is our version of screen rants pitch meeting show Let's move on to our last main topic for today. Uh, as we're getting closer to award season, some of the um, some of the major awards bodies have been putting out their thing. This is not one of them. This is the People's Choice Awards. It acknowledges a lot of the popularity of the movies and the cinema that we've gotten this year. And this year is probably one of the biggest reasonings for that with people coming back to theaters. So it's important to pay attention to it. And we just got the nominees for the 47th uh, People's Choice Awards earlier this week. We're going to be talking about primarily the major TV and movie topics. Uh, there's at least a couple dozen that you can look up. There's plenty of them. And again, if you're a fan of, you know, general movie TV and popcorn culture, it's there. Uh, the nominees for movie of 2021, we have Black Widow, Coming to America, F9, Dune, No Time to Die, Shun-Chi and the Ten Rings, The Tomorrow War, and Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And your nominees for the show of 2021 are The Bachelor, Cobra Kai, Law & Order SVU, Grey's Anatomy, Loki, Saturday Night Live, This Is Us, and WandaVision. Uh, important to note that both F9 and This Is Us also led in overall nominations. F9 got eight, which seems incredibly non-poetic, and uh, six, nominees, six nominations for This Is Us. If you want to watch the uh, 47 People's Choice Awards, they will be broadcast on December 7th on both NBC and E, and audiences, and then then that's any of you who want to vote. You will have until November 17th to vote at votepca.com. That's votepca.com. Sam, I want to go over to you first. Uh, of the main movie and show categories, which do you see taking home the prize based on general audience reactions? And were there any surprises that you saw snubbed out of these? Gosh, just to address the surprises, my my guess is is not as strong of an emotion as the surprises. So um, coming to America, I am so shocked that I made it this list because I saw that earlier this year and I honestly did not like it. There was a weird trans joke in there, like tra- transphobic joke that kind of made me uncomfortable. And then it, the, the writing was bad. It was just an overall bad movie. So I have no idea how it made it up here, especially because I don't know very many people who saw it other than like fellow critics like us. So I, I'm not exactly sure how it made it up there. Um, so I was really surprised about that. Uh, but I would say I can imagine F9 winning it all. I mean, you even said it right there that F9 leads in overall nominations for the movies, at least. And people love F9. I mean, that's why we have nine of these now. So I, I, I just have, Shaw. 
Oh, don't even remind me. <laughs> but it's like, you know, the fact that we have that many, I feel like that's going to take everything home. For my personal choice, I would love to see like Shang-Chi uh, take it home because I feel like overall people really liked that movie. And I say that because I think more people liked Shang-Chi than uh, Black Widow at some time. So uh, out of the movies, that's my, my take on it. And then out of the shows, I have seen three of these on the list. Uh, this Is Us, I'm so far behind on. Same with Grey's. And uh, Saturday Night Live, I just see random episodes depending on the host. So um, out of the things that I can talk from, I have a feeling that WandaVision is going to take it home. So many people love WandaVision. So that's just kind of my guess. I also personally loved WandaVision. I think it's brilliant. And it kind of set the tone for phase four here in the MCU. So I just think that it's going to be a popular choice here. I'm sorry. I just have to ask, who put the Tomorrow War on here? That's another one. I didn't watch it either. (laughs) The same question. I've seen it. There's a, there's a, there's part of a review written somewhere in my Google Docs, which <laughs> I didn't get around to finishing because there was so much in that movie that I thought, at a, I mean, even in retrospect, I was almost convincing myself that I loved it. And then I went back to it and I go, I don't love this. <laughs> but that was a surprise for me. Definitely surprised to see the Tomorrow War up there as the movie of 2021. It's just, sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't hold itself to that title. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, it is easily the one that I'd swap out of here. I, I don't know. Maybe I'd swap it out for either, you know, Ryan the Last Dragon or Luca, because I know that Pixar and Disney fans have been clamoring about those, as have I. As far as what I would take for the winner for a movie, I mean, Dune is making a pretty big impression, but I think it's a bit too recent. Uh, Venom has its fans, but I don't think it's, you know, that widely loved. I'm with you, Sam. I don't know why Coming to America is there. I know that Eddie Murphy has his fans, but I didn't see the clamoring love for it that I guess is there. I think it's going to be a tie between F9 and Black Widow. I think more audiences gravitated towards Natasha as a character unfairly over a decade. But I think there is that love there. And I think F9, even if it did underperform a little bit globally, it's still Fast and Furious. Like it has that global appeal. It has, you know, all the love from the fans. It has the family from the fans, I should say. And I think both of those are probably your runner-ups for though. For TV, WandaVision definitely has the edge on that because I haven't seen a shift like what WandaVision did for television fandom like that in a while. Like Loki... Tremendous, you know, Falcon Winter Soldier had its appeal, but WandaVision, I think, changed how a lot of people watch serialized television, at least for this year. Um, Law and Order obviously has its fans. Grey's Anatomy has its fans. Don't underestimate The Bachelor, though. Um, I know so many people watch The Bachelor and will vote for this over and over and over again. So I would put WandaVision, but Bachelor just slightly behind. Uh, no over to you. Yeah, movie categories. Here's one I want to see get recognized. I would love if No Time to Die um, earned that best movie. I did really love that one. So I have that one up there for my, uh, you know, personal prediction. No Time to Die would love to see that get recognition, uh, along with Dune, along with Shang-Chi. Um, specifically for Shang-Chi, I think that Simu Liu should really take home the award for male movie star of 2021. I thought that he had such great presence in Shang-Chi that I think uh, the future for his role and his character in Marvel is going to be something to pay attention to. Uh, and then for female movie star of 2021, I need to see Florence Pugh with that award because um, Sam said it herself in her Black Widow review, like she steals the spotlight and you just want to see more. I can't, I can't wait for what Yelena is going to bring to us in Hawkeye. That's going to be very, it's going to be very nice to see her against uh, Kate and Hawkeye. Then when it comes to TV, I think that again, uh, to reiterate your points, WandaVision, WandaVision, deserves that award i think that it should take it home specifically female tv star of 2021 uh again wandavision it's got to either be katherine han or elizabeth olsen because uh who who else could do that agatha the way han did i think that 
that was such a fun role. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this Halloween we saw a couple Agatha Harknesses out there on the streets. Um, and then, of course, I saw one of the categories was most binge worthy. That's going to go to Squid Game, or at least, you know, that's what I predict is it has to go to Squid Game. Everybody's talking Squid Game. Um, and yeah, that's all I have on it. Let's move on then to our quick hits portion. In case you are unaware, this is the segment of the show where each of us picks one topic. We get a minute, maybe sometimes a little bit more, but we usually try to take it for a minute of whatever topic, you know, tickles our fancy, maybe doesn't have enough time or, you know, universality for our main topic. So let's get started on this. Uh, Noah, do you mind starting or? I don't mind starting at all. Okay. Let me just make sure I have what I need pulled up in front of me. Hold on. I have Twitter asking me how old I am. Okay. I'm keeping that on the show. There's the soundbite, yeah. <laughs> Comment on our Twitter poll. Uh, how old is Noah? I'll make that the thing. <laughs> All right. My quick hit is going to start in three, two, one. All right. Today I'm talking my horror director, not mine, but a lot of the horror fans. We praise him. His name is Mike Flanagan of Midnight Mass, of Oculus. Um, plenty of projects out there for you to get behind. He tweeted about a sudden urge to direct a Star Wars horror earlier this week. Uh, I'll go ahead and read that tweet to you now. He tweeted on the 24th, got woken up by the earthquake this morning, sat there for a few minutes just thinking, I'd really love to make a horror movie in the Star Wars universe. And that just prompted so much response for horror fans and Star Wars fans alike, because I think of the directors who could handle a Star Wars scale project and put a spin of horror onto it, please let that man be, or please that let that director be Mike Flanagan. That would be amazing to witness. And then secondly, Dune Part 2 is coming. We have a tweet from Legendary saying, this is only the beginning, sharing a screenshot that is titled Dune Part 2. And they say, thank you to those who have experienced Dune so far. Those who are going in the days and weeks ahead, we're excited to continue the journey. We're all excited to be a part of the experience too. And that's all for mine. Thank you. All Perfect right. timing. <laughs> Sam, over to you for your quick hit. You got it. All right. Resetting clock. All right. Quick hits in three, two, one. So I actually have two, which I think could be shoved together. They are video game themed. So the first one, I was really excited to see that A Quiet Place was announced to become a video game, which is really neat. Um, so it's supposed to be an original single player story driven horror adventure that's set in the universe for A Quiet Place. So I think that's really cool. I can imagine having tons of fun with that, though I might be a wuss and throw my controller across the room if it's scary, but this is fine. That's why we're here. And my other quick hit is actually about uh, Timothy Chalamet. Um, it was announced that he had a, a YouTube channel in the past where he modded and showed off Xbox 360 controllers. So if you go onto that channel, it's actually only like three controllers and supposedly he only sold three so can you imagine how much those probably are it's it's going to be insane honestly if somebody still has them in their in their um storage units somewhere but the youtube channel is called modded controller 360 if any of you are curious about that and those are all my quick hits actually i'm, I'm glad you brought the quiet place thing we didn't get to talk about it this week but apparently that spinoff that is being worked on jeff nichols from midnight special is actually not working on that anymore but it is still apparently in development which i thought was very interesting that is very interesting all right, going over to mine, I have my clock set up if my phone works. Uh, We're just having tons of technical difficulties today, fam. In three, two. 
So as many of you, I'm sure, in the you know nerd young adult sphere may know, and, and if your name is Noah Guzman, uh, Percy Jackson is getting a live-action adaptation at Disney+. Plus. It's happening again. We don't have to worry about the films ever again. I still like the first one. But we got an announcement from uh, Rick Riordan, who is the author of the books on his uh, blog, that not only have they been in L.A. scouting locations, they've been scouting VFX artists, but most importantly... They have a director for at least the pilot, and it's going to be James Bobbin, who, if you are not familiar with his name, you are familiar with his work. Uh, he did the 2011 Muppets remake. He did the sequel, Muppets Most Wanted. And he very recently worked on the Mysterious Benedict Society for Disney+, Plus, which just got greenlit for season two, if you're excited about that. Uh, production is supposed to begin next summer. He said, don't, you know, take his word for, you know, God or anything, but that's when they're aiming for it. I'm ecstatic about this. I love Bobbin's work. I think having someone who is in that Disney wheelhouse can allow for a really good kind of mediation between the two. I'm ecstatic to see where the series goes, and I really just hope it turns out well. And time. And that's been all of our quick hits, everybody. We can uh, introduce the new movies that we're going to be covering in our review portion of this episode. The two movies we're covering today are Last Night in Soho and Antlers. So both of these actually are more horror you know, in the horror space. So this can be our thematic portion for today's Halloween app. Uh, you're going to hear I'll about that. Uh, I'll put in like a spooky lightning sound bite here. <laughs> Love it. Um, it turns out our non-Halloween episode is actually very Halloween-y so far. So this is cool. <laughs> Toy Story Halloween-y, yeah. Um, the two movies we're talking today, Last Night in Soho, Sam will be getting your review. Uh, Brandon saw it as well, so we'll be getting some conversation from him. And then I will be covering Antlers for you uh, at the tail end. So Sam, why don't we go ahead and introduce Last Night in Soho? Thank you, Noah. So yes, with Last Night in Soho, this is a movie that I ended up reviewing for Odyssey Online. So check those out in our links whenever they pop up. Um, but this movie is such a crazy, crazy psychological thriller. And I didn't realize it was going to be this scary. And then the trailer came out way back when, and I'm like, oh, we're in for a treat. So Last Night in Soho is a film that is directed and written by Edgar Wright. So we have the same director here who was in charge of Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver, just to name a couple. Um, but it's it's, it's this really haunting thriller uh, that is so fascinating and engaging, but I just feel like, you know, the finale is a little rushed, like maybe the last 15 minutes, but that's why I'm curious to know what all of you think as well as Brandon. Um, but for a bit about the movie, we already mentioned it's a thriller. So we have a fashion student who is our um, main character here. That's uh, her name is Eloise. She goes by Ellie and she's played by Thomas and Mackenzie. So she, you get this vibe early on from her that she loves anything old so that includes like records she has a huge love for like the 1960s and she also wears these uh, this like antiquated clothing but then you know she wants to be a fashion student so she ends up going to london for that of course in soho her roommate sucks super mean um the she also ends up meeting other people in college who are just mean and um her life is basically miserable when she moves to this big city that she was looking forward to other than this one boy who really took an interest in her a romantic interest and she's still not having it she's still not enjoying her her time here so she ends up renting a flat that's owned by an older woman who is played by the great dame diana uh, diana rigg um and so during her first night she ends up falling asleep and somehow she's magically transported into the, the 1960s soho where we see sandy played by anya taylor joy who is kind of like her mirror it's confusing and they don't really describe how that works but like she looks in a mirror to the left and and basically Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomas and McKenzie are mimicking each other's movements and that's kind of seen throughout these dream sequences so somehow they're connected do we find out do we not up to you to find out um but then 
uh, Sandy's story is she wants to be an actress and a singer. So she's given this chance at success um, with a kind of talent agent. Uh, That's what he seemingly is. Um, His name is Jack and he's played by Matt Smith. So this is a pretty cool cast. And, you know, that's that's the gist of this movie, because then, you know, the more Ellie visits these dreams, the more nightmarish they get. Uh, and then even in the beginning, too, I forgot to mention, she does see her long deceased mother in the mirror um, as well in a reflection. And again, it's not really explained why. So that kind of keeps the mystery of it. So um, that's kind of the synopsis of it. But uh, Brandon, I'm curious to hear what you thought of it, um, because as a spoiler alert to everybody, it's not a real spoiler. It's a joke, more like, like what I'm trying to say. Um, we both don't usually run to see horror movies. So, nope. so I'm really excited to hear what Brandon has to say about it. And then I'll, I'll go on my bit then. It's called progress, Sam. We're getting up to Noah's level eventually. Yes. Um, <laughs> Cause the thing is, there's two ways I can look at this. There is the me who is not a horror fan. And the me who is not a horror fan was fine through two thirds of this movie. And the last third of it was literally, and you can't see my webcam was squeezing in my seat because I was mortally terrified because I am a wimp. Um, on the other hand, on the more critical angle of it all, there, there are things about this movie I absolutely adore. Um, and this is also Gregor Wright's uh, second movie this year following the Spartsburgers, which I also freaking adore. It's probably going to be my best of the year of the list. I think it's tremendous. Uh, it's one of the best documentaries I've seen in a while. But this is, you know, right at, at how you know him, but you know, the fast cuts and the music cues and, you know, everything that people love about it. I will say Edgar Wright's style here is totally on display and flourishes. Uh, you mentioned Thomas C. McKenzie who is tremendous in this. She has to carry almost every major moment of this movie on her back, and she owns every second. I mean, like we knew from, you know, Leave No Trace and Judge Rabbit and everything. I've looked her in truest of the Kelly gang, frankly, and she has just shown herself to be such an incredibly talented, charismatic young actress who just seems to have, who just seems to have like every emotion nailed down and who has every sense of, you know, screen presence nailed down. And she nails Ellie's, really dramatic development as the movie goes on from being that kind of, you know, sheltered, you know, kid who makes her own clothes, whose only friend is their grandmother, to someone who is, you know, going out and solving murder mysteries in like downtown London. And it's a great transformation you see from the character. I also want to point out uh, Chung Hoon Chung's cinematography, who uh, who also did uh, It and The Handmaiden, who's also doing the uh, Obi-Wan series in Disney+. Plus. He is tremendous here. He captures so much, especially the nighttime shots, the way the kind of, you know, the theater display show and the way like, you know, the cars are kind of rolling around the streets. Everything is vividly shot and I love it. Then you get to the writing and I have some issues. I think it gets really muddled. I think the third act tries to employ again, more of that stylish perspective. And I don't think Edgar Wright was the right person to tackle this kind of idea to it. It's graphic. It, it revels in its graphic. I talked about Last Duel a couple weeks ago, and I kind of had the same issue that I had with this, which is that if your if your film is tackling this kind of brutal subject matter, there has to be an element of empowerness. There has to be an element of subduing expectations, I should say. And I didn't feel like this was. I felt it was just, we are doing this, and you have to watch it. And I feel like it is going to be triggering some audience between that and also with you know all the flashing lights and everything like that. But even beyond that, as someone who is not necessarily triggered by those things, I just found it kind of gratuitous and kind of in your face when it doesn't need to be, especially for when the third act comes into play. And again, I won't say what it what it you know reveals, but I will say it didn't totally click for me. Beyond the supernatural stuff, that is terrifying, but I also found very muddled in its own mythology. So again, I have things that I adore about this movie that I would recommend people go see, especially horror fans and Edgar Wright enthusiasts. Everyone else, I would say, proceed with caution. Uh, Sam, over to you. I, I actually haven't talked to you about this, so I'm curious how you felt about this. 
Honestly, it's funny. We kind of felt the same way about things. So I, uh, I can't get enough of the cinematography. Like you said, Chung Hun's Chung is like amazing because like we've already mentioned, the lighting is phenomenal and they really do a good job with like creating more mystery with those like deep red tones. Uh, so it's just, it's creepy and I love it. So I could watch that cinematography all day. And especially with the one shot, when we get into that first dream sequence and Sandy slash Ellie are running down the staircase and you see Ellie's reflection in that mirror. And just that shot where she starts to multiply because of the mirrors. I thought it was so beautiful. So there are so many moments like that in the movie that I think are just beautiful to look at. And I also got to give a shout out to the music too. I honestly thought the music was really great from Stephen Price. And then we have the downtown both performed in a down tempo and an up tempo from Anya Taylor-Joy. It's just phenomenal i think it's great because that is actually her singing those um so you know super talented can't get enough of her um but i also had a problem with the writing to be honest i was on such a high from enjoying like most of the movie like 75 percent of it and then when i got out of the theater i thought more about it and i'm like this is kind of a lot like i'm still confused on how things ended and again there aren't any spoilers in this it's just it felt very ambiguous and not satisfying it was a little confusing to know after all these characters went through how did we get this conclusion and that's kind of how i felt about it so we'll see uh like brandon said proceed with caution but i think anybody who's a fan of these actresses uh, they're phenomenal you should keep an eye out on them and um you know just if you're a fan of horror movies too it's just a good one to see for hall weekend um yeah and that's all i have to say about it I have a question for you both after seeing last night in Soho. I understand your comments about the conclusion not feeling at all like like a conclusion, but Brandon mentioned murder mystery earlier. Do you feel rewarded with the type of clues that you get there or like the journey that they bring you on for for what's being what's at the root of the case or like what you know she's trying to solve a crime case? Like can can one of you touch upon that cuz that's that's kind of what I'm leaning towards the movie for. Yeah, because it really turns on its head at the climax. Like you find out something happened. It's in the trailer, so it's it's not too much of a spoiler, but you see a knife held up to Sandy's face. So it's assumed that, you know, something happened there. And so because Ellie's so obsessed with this image of this person, she keeps like asking questions like what happened to her because my visions are seemingly true and and she's at this point in the movie invested in sandy as a character like she's designed dresses after the things that she wears in the movie and like dyes her hair the same blonde color so it's like she's very invested in sandy um and so that's why she kind of has this this new mission to find out what is wrong you know how can i help this person um so that's kind of how i took it there is. And there's also that kind of, I think this theme mostly works again until like the last half where it kind of gets a bit muddled, where you're watching Ellie's journey and seeing her visions with Sandy and kind of getting that opinion of, well, is she idolizing Sandy as much as, you know, 60s aesthetic? And more than that, is she idolizing an idea of 60s aesthetic that never existed in the first place? Because the movie takes these breadcrumbs of kind of being like, oh, that's cool. No, it's really not. So eventually you get to this point where that illusion is kind of shattered as you also get into, you know, Ellie's psychosis demeanor. Like there's this whole thing in the movie where, you know, the bullies, you mentioned uh, Jocasta, her roommate, who is again, a jerk, but there's kind of that angle of it where she's like, oh, well, you know, her mom had conditions and like, she's going through all these. So like, is it all in her head? And that kind of builds up a nice momentum to the movie as you're watching her. And again, Tomasi McKenzie handles this wonderfully. So I think that's another angle to put attention to. 
I feel like it was easy to guess the twist. I don't know how Brandon felt about it, but I thought it was easy to guess the twist. I hate myself that I couldn't tell because when they when they do it, well, it, there's, there's two twists. There's the twist with the first character and the twist with the last character. And I will say uh-huh. the first one, I was not expecting. The first one, I was purely just, I should have seen this coming. And the second one, I was like, yep, that makes sense. <laughs> now, see, we're the opposite. We're flipped. The first one I saw coming. The second one, I did not. <laughs> Interesting. So this is this is very interesting. I can only imagine if we saw it together, what would be happening in our minds. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'll I'm gonna say, <laughs> I was gonna say no, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. But I guess, you know, just to wrap, um, we'll go through star ratings real quick. So I went with a seven. I, I loved the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's just the writing really fell apart for me in that ending, so that kind of killed it. I'll go slightly lower, six and a half. Again, the things that are tremendous about this, I think Edgar Wright has really, Edgar Wright has really narrowed into something really cool with this premise. And he has actors and actresses, specifically, again, Thomasine McKenzie, who can handle this in their sleep and who has all the technical prowess in the world. But he and Kiersey Wilson Collins' screenplay, which again is admirable and it's trying to do the right thing. You can tell that he has the right intentions behind it. It just cannot sustain the weight of its own ambitions under it. And it really just, it falls apart thematically, let alone narratively. So if you if you can't get behind that, don't bother. But again, it's right. He has all the style in the world to back it up. Awesome. And so with that, we'll go on to our next movie that's on the dock here. So Antlers, I am excited to hear from our horror king himself, Noah, uh, on his uh, opinions and thoughts and, and reacts on Antlers. Excellent reviews, by the way, for last night in Soho. I am not at all discouraged. I am only more excited to go see it so we can have a nice back and forth about it on our own. Um, Antlers. So this movie is based on a short story titled The Quiet Boy by Nick and Tosca, which is actually available online. If you just Google The Quiet Boy, followed by his name, Nick uh, and Tosca, you'll probably have um, that pre-filled and then you can go explore that story. It's a short story. You could probably read it in, uh, in half a day. So the movie itself, it's produced by Antosca, the original writer, uh, as, as well as Guillermo del Toro um, from The Shape of Water and many other projects and amongst other producers. The stars are Carrie Russell, Jesse Plemons, and Jeremy T. Thomas, um, also with appearances from Graham Greene, who I recognize from the Twilight series. Uh, this is directed by Scott Cooper. Not a familiar name um, for my knowledge. It looks like his acting credits surpass his directing credits. There's only about six there. Um, but the projects that he does direct, he tends to write and direct. So the same is true here. He writes the screenplay and he directs uh, this movie, Antlers. So I'm going to dive right into the plot. The story sees a young boy, Lucas, who is played by Jeremy T. Thomas, taking care of his dad and brother who are in a sort of feral state and locked in their cellar. Lucas attends school, and that's where Carrie Russell teaches. Her character's name is Julia. She teaches and she starts to take note of his weird, um, weird, isolated behavior Uh, through an investigation of Lucas's home we all realize that the state of their his family is far worse and a lot more animalistic than we imagined. It gets bloody and it gets legendary. So I watched this movie. I was a little late to the theater. So honestly, I missed the very beginning. Full honesty here with our listeners. But um, I was tuned in for the movie. I found that the scares, it was selling a creature feature. Um, for anybody who's seen the trailer, that's not really a big surprise. But yeah, um, the movie's called Antlers. So we have some kind of creature where we know um, antlers are going to be sticking out of their body. Um, and finally, when we see this beast and when they when it feeds, when it attacks, it's always... Uh, very memorable settings, very memorable actions. Um, it is, it's so bloody. I think that the way this creature just 
attacks its prey uh, looked completely animalistic. And when you finally, or ultimately, when you learn the origin of this creature, um, it starts to make sense as to why these scenes are so gruesome. There's a lot of gloom in this movie, not only from Carrie Russell's character, who is actually a survivor of child abuse, but also from the location. It's set in a remote Oregon town, and you get a lot of wide shots just exploring the mountainous ranges behind them. All of the lake views are beautiful, and that leads me to um, the visual part of this conversation where antlers actually surprise me. Shots are often centrally focused, and they're always beautiful to look at. Um, There's wonderful colors here. You're getting a lot of dark grays, dark blacks, of course, because we're in this remote town, but when a police car is like blasting down the street. You feel all those lights without getting blinded by them. Um, you get some amazing shots of the creature itself and it's beating almost fiery heart because it's like a heating, it's like a heated core that you can see through the, through the flesh of the beast. And it, and it actually looks just, just really great. So I had a lot of fun just watching the creature be on screen. Um, some of the parts of the movie or some of the downsides of this movie, I think would have to be with its characters. Um, I understand why we support Julia, the teacher, as she places herself in this guardian's role for Lucas. But I think that um, the ultimate act of trust that is, that is performed, you know, towards the end of the movie had me doubting whether or not it was going to be used against us, like used against the audiences, like, haha, you shouldn't have trusted me that fast. But we never, I don't think that's supposed to happen. I think we're supposed to trust that these characters get along as fast as they do. Um, I just had a problem with Lucas feeling so, I guess, taken care of um, when she was around. It didn't give me a lot of development between them as, as a, as guardian and, and, or I'm sorry, as caretaker and I guess ward um, throughout this creature tale. But overall, I found this to be a creepy legend turned into a quick, uh, a quick horror feature and it delivers disgusting and great monster visuals it's all wrapped up in a tame 90 minute story i didn't have a lot of downsides with this film i mean it kept me engaged i don't think i was super surprised but that's not to say that this is a beautiful story um and it also uh, touches upon the legend that is in that is involved uh i think rather nicely and i gave it a solid seven out of ten i would go watch it again you're a guillermo del toro fan are you not yes i am I know that you're not as familiar with Scott Cooper's work with, you know, Postles and, you know, uh, Black Mass and everything. How much influence did you see from Del Toro's very distinct kind of ideology for monsters and doom and gloom in this? I think I get so bummed out when we have a creature feature and they're always just flashes of the, of the creature's teeth of the, it's always a focus on the blood or I guess like the claws here, just like in Pan's Labyrinth, like you have an original concept of a creature that you get bright visuals from where I think it it really goes to show that like when people get creative with the beasts that they feature, it tells so much more when you give us that slow panning shot across their back, when we can see how the body has morphed from a, Ooh, see, I almost, I almost said something. And it's like, it, it just, it does take its time with appreciating the, visual look of the creature. And I think that that's got to be an influence from Del Toro because that's somebody who will create monsters and, and show you how they look um outside of just the you know the killing setting this is when they're on the hunt when they're in their safe territory when they're just relaxing i just like to see a monster when they're not attacking you know what does it look like when it's on its own and that's what this movie shows us 
Well said. Uh, we're going to move on then to our TV nonsense streaming wars of the week. One day we'll come up with a segment name for it. Uh, this is the segment where we talk about some things in TV this week because we can't watch it all because we have lives. Um, we're going to talk first about the first half of uh, Netflix's Made miniseries. Uh, we didn't get the chance to watch all of it. We're going to talk about the first five episodes of Made. Uh, for those of you unaware, this is again on Netflix, a uh, show ran by Molly Smith Metzler. It's based on Stephanie Land's novel, Made Hard Work, Low Pay, and Mother's Will to Survive. It stars Margaret Qualley, who you've seen a bunch of things, Death Note, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, she stars here as Alex, who is a uh, young mother. Uh, she has a young infant daughter named Maddie, who's played by, I'm forgetting the actress's name, uh, Rylea Nevea Wittet. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, and I probably am. Uh, she is living with her husband, Sean, uh, played by Nick Robinson. One night, Sean has had a bit too much drink. He starts hitting the walls. He starts going mad. And Alex takes their daughter and just kind of takes her away. And this leads to a whole instigated case of, you know, uh, the court is accusing her of abducting. Sean's family is completely on his side. They believe he's a good guy. They believe this was all a fluke. Alex does not believe this at all. She doesn't believe her daughter is safe. She also has uh, conflicts with her mother, who is played by in this by Andy McDowell who is, has her own kind of issues. She's dating a much younger guy. She's very bohemian kind of in her own world. And this essentially leads to the main crux of the series, which is Alex trying to regain custody of her daughter back, all while trying to keep herself managed financially. She gets a job as a maid for a local maid service. She meets a wealthy uh, homeowner played by Annika Nomi Rose. And it kind of just explores this thing of a mother trying to regain custody of her child amidst a bunch of systems that would really rather her not do that, or at least don't believe that she should. Uh, no, I want to go over to you first. Uh, what did you think of the first half of Made, considering that this is a dense show, as I'm sure we'll get into? There's a lot to discuss here, uh, but I'm sure we're going to forget a lot of it. But what did you think of the first half? It pretty quickly became, I guess, it touched me personally, just having family members who I have seen reach some of the lows where they don't have a place to live or they don't have a, a steady relationship with their, um, with the parent of their, of their child. And they start going through these, um, situations, these scenarios where it seems like all hope is lost and all you have really is just that love between in this story, um, a mother and her daughter. And so at the end of episode one, any of our listeners who enjoy those heart cords getting, getting uh, pulled on, I was bawling my eyes out. I mean, <laughs> there was a tissue box probably constantly by me um, because of how well done. I think that these moments are, I've enjoyed the first half of made not only for the performance uh, behind the Alex character, which is um, phenomenal. It was interesting to see Nick Robinson too play such an evil, like bad guy. Um, I love him from other work that he's done in um, love Simon. I think the highlight of this show is really the intimidating systems that um, certain families have to find themselves in or certain families find themselves in and, and are often unprepared for. It can lead to so much just surprise over how over how unprepared they were for those things. So there's even situations where Alex has to go to court and the conversation, like within the writing of the TV show, the conversation between the court commissioner and um, her the the father's attorney is like legal, legal, legal. And then she illegally legaled. And then that's when I'm going to legal, legal, legal. And then I'm going to going to legal, legal. And because that's what you hear when you're not involved in that word, when you don't know all that jargon, that's probably all it feels like is you're just throwing legal terms at me and expecting me to respond with them. And I have no idea where you're even at. I don't even know why I'm here. And so I think those moments just spoke to the reality of what those situations can cause uh, for those in them. 
Um, another highlight was probably when she was in the grocery store and she had to use something equivalent uh, to, I would imagine, like food stamps. And as soon as she pulls them out to use them, she imagines that the cashier is like, going over the intercom and saying clean up on aisle poor and it's just it's ridiculous but it's like of course you would think that because we have a character who is who is so unfamiliar um with how these things are supposed to go this is just their immediate reaction like everybody's going to be just judging her um i find it i find it easy to watch um i mean i guess i can't say easy to watch i find it hard to watch for sure but it is so well done that i i do find it um enjoyable and i want to see where this story wraps up uh, Sam, how have you liked Made so far? I, I love that you brought up those points because something with Made that surprised me was how immersed we are in the story from Alex's point of view. And especially in a very creative sense, because in the first episode, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. And then I loved it more as we went on to, you know, the, the rest of the episodes. So I absolutely loved that legal scene because, yeah, that is exactly what most people who aren't lawyers or in the legal industry, um, nobody's going to know what those terms mean. And so I just thought that was interesting. You saw that from her point of view and same with like filling out those papers and those forms to apply to all those programs and those, he- not the headlines, but like the headers on each of the pages, they said random things like you're going to lose. Cause you know, that's just what she's imagining. And I, I thought that was very creative. I didn't expect it to be that creative. I feel like a big standout scene is the <laughs> Shamariel flying out the window scene watching that I was I was like balled up on my couch because I was like filled with such anxiety it was such a well done scene um and so basically it's just I, I thought it really showcased Margaret's acting as well as the daughter's I couldn't believe what I was seeing with with that little girl and so that that whole scene was amazing and um I also thought it was really amazing to see Margaret stand up to um Annika, who plays Regina, and Regina is basically the first uh, owner of the house that Alex cleans in the first episode. So you see her a few more times, and yeah, it's that scene where she basically stands up for herself for the, I'm sure, the first time in a while because she doesn't even stand up to to Sean. It was such a powerful scene. So uh, I think there's a lot to love in the show, and I can't wait to see what else um, happens from here. Number one, I want to bring up the editing choices in the special effects show, because I think those little bits, whether it's the legalese or whether it's the cashier thing, or whether it's the, you know, in the first two episodes with the uh, the money stuff, where it's constantly crossing off and showing how much debt, I think those things, first of all, they make very clear that Margot Robbie is producing this, because this feels like kind of a Margot Robbie choice. But at the same time, I also love it because it kind of adds slight bits of humor to a show that would otherwise not have any. I feel like it adds that bit of, you know, kind of dark, weird quirkiness to it where you can kind of go, huh, I guess that works. And it, but it builds up and it adds that momentum to the show that would otherwise just be, you know, Alex going through, you know, garbage. And speaking of Alex, Margaret Qualley is fantastic in this. She really, truly is. I've not seen her in the leftovers yet. I've heard she's phenomenal in that. And I've seen her in a couple of movies things. She is tremendous in this. And Nick Robinson too is, you know, I think pretty underrated for the most part. Margaret Qualley owns every second of this. And Rileya Whittell, who's a little kid, is, she has a very huge impact on where the story goes, obviously, she's a toddler. But I love where Qualley takes the direction of Alex as a character because I think so often it becomes, you know, kind of going to the trappings of where the where the writing wants to take it, of that thing of, well, she's a maid. So we have to emphasize the fact of that she is, you know, poor, that she is, you know, down on her luck. 
But the show kind of finds ways to kind of twist it on its head. And I've been really impressed by how, whether it's her and her mom, whether it's her and the cleaning service employees, whether it's her and, um, and Anakin and Regina's uh, character, which I find fascinating. And I, the, with the last episode, I'm very curious to see how many more interactions we will see between those two. I'm overall mostly impressed with this. I'm really worried that in the last half we're going to see, we're going to see it just fall into normal, you know, court drama trope. I'm very worried that it could fall into, you know, pretty standard writing procedures when I've been really impressed by the risks it's been taking so far. But you know what? Kudos to what it's done so far. It's gotten me involved. I acknowledge it's probably a bit too long, but you know what? I will take it for what it is. Question for you both. How irked were you? every moment that the mother passed on signing those papers. Uh, the mother's name is Paula. She's played by Annie McDowell, and she plays a sort of erratic um, artist, very spontaneous, very impulsive, um, very selfish with her actions. I don't think that she puts her daughter, Alex, before the needs of her own. Um, and there are, there are some moments where we see that relationship between Paula and Alex um, being more estranged and, and they're there for each other, like to help move uh, art equipment or they're there for each other. Like when Paula surprises Alex by painting a mural on her daughter's wall, um, there's these small moments of, I guess, love that we're supposed to understand. It irritates me when she's involved because I, I just, I don't trust her. And I don't think that she's going to be that support system for Alex because she hasn't been. And so a uh, question for you both, like, how do you feel about that character? And I think that was a really great point to put up because that's all credit, I think, to Andy McDowell. I mean, she made Paula such an eccentric character. You hate her with a fiery passion because she is very selfish or kind of thick. Like, she's lost in her own world, basically. So even as Alex is trying to tell something to her mom, she's still going off into her own world and her own mind and, like, going on about whatever's in her own head, not even listening to her daughter. And I also wanted to point out that they are actually a real life mother daughter duo. So it's, that's an interesting dynamic in itself, but yeah, I think Paula is such a well done character for how chaotic she is. I think the line in episode three speaks volumes when I think it's the episode where they're buying burgers or anything like that. And, you know, Oh my God. Yeah. And Alex is scolding her just being like, you didn't do this. You didn't do and she goes, well, at least I didn't lose custody of my kid. I just go that. No. That speaks volumes to who you are as a person. And oh my God, Andy McDowell, you're making this character so complicated to like. Okay, that kind of wraps our early discussion on Made. We know we're all going to tune in for the for the later half, of, sorry, the second half of that season. We'll be bringing you our review and star rating at next week's episode. But for now, I think it's a good time to transition out of Made territory. Brandon and myself are talking Inside Job, a new animated series from Netflix. Yeah, Inside Job. Uh, this is not show ran by Alex Hirsch, despite what Twitter would have you believe. He is an executive producer on the project, of course, from Gravity Falls and a bunch of other amazing, amazing things. This is show ran by Shion Takeyoshi, who was a staff writer on Gravity Falls. Uh, she is making her, I think, executive show run debut on this. I could be wrong, and I will fact check that later, but she is the executive on this. The premise of the series, in a nutshell, is every conspiracy theory is real. So it is essentially that there is a big shadow corporation called Cognito Inc. who controls and manages and keeps at bay all of the weird nonsense of the world. So, you know, psychic mushroom people and hollow earth things and, you know, everything that you can think of, it, robotic presidents, you know, the Illuminati, like all of that is real in the context of this series. And in this, we follow Reagan Ridley, who is voiced by Lizzie Kaplan. She's kind of this socially awkward type A kind of character who works cognito. Her dad, voiced by Christian Slater, 
was a higher up at the company, has since gone on to basically become like a drunk on his ass. Uh, he's not really doing anything with his life. He's just trying to, you know, find power grabs wherever he can and, you know, engage in flame wars with whoever will listen. But Reagan is the primary protagonist of the story. She's trying to become, you know, the head of, Inco- of Cognito from uh, Andy Daly's character, J.R., who looks way too much by Stephen Colbert, by the way, who, but who is basically, you know, kind of the overarching CEO of the company. She has her team beside her. She is, you know, making experiments and everything. She's a student for this. And then all of a sudden, a yes man from Yale, uh, Brett Hand, who is voiced by uh, Clark Duke from uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, a bunch of other, uh, among a bunch of other things. He is appointed as sort of the co-head of the company alongside her. And they have to learn to put aside their differences and work together. Again, Reagan is much more cynical and realistic. Brett is more optimistic, you know, white privilege, if you want to call it that. And they kind of have to work with their team to solve whatever madness comes about. If that includes a psychedelic horny mushroom uh, voiced by Brett Gelman, who uh, is named Mike, who just d- says whatever comes out of his mouth, as well as uh, Glenn Dolphman, voiced by the one and only John DiMaggio, who is a human-soldier-dolphin hybrid. That's essentially where the show lies in a very, very big, weird nutshell. Uh, Noah, I want to get your uh, thoughts on this first. First of all, have you had experience with Gravity Falls and things with the other creators as well? And what did you think of part one of uh, of Inside Job? No, actually, I I never tuned into Gravity Falls. But regarding Inside Job, I think that just as a new series, you've kind of Brandon has sort of been the voice for the Popcorn Club uh, internally for us to up our animation game. And so uh, he talked about Amphibia um, in the early episodes, and that's become a, a part of my watch list on Disney Plus. And now we're talking uh, Netflix's Inside Job. So you've touched upon, I mean, the characters who are absolutely like wacky but together form this sort of i don't know like their their team banter and everybody having their individualized comments are really what get me through each episode i just i'm waiting to hear what the half man half dolphin uh sergeant has to say or i'm I'm waiting for the yeah the sentient uh magic mushroom to start making some kind of raunchy joke um the scenarios are probably some that i would never be able to predict but being somebody who um, was always fascinated by conspiracy theories and was always like, oh, let me read up about the pyramid inside the dollar. Um, I was always like intrigued by them. And so to see them all work together and be covered by a company called Cognito Inc. is just something I haven't seen before or wouldn't have imagined. And uh, Lindsay Kaplan is great for the voice cast. I think that it's easy to compare it to other shows that get sort of wacky and sort of sci-fi because there are lizard people. But the type of the type of back and forth um, between each of the characters, I think, really just shows that this is a different type of show. I just think that the main character of Reagan is so fun to follow because hey, she doesn't care what other people think about her. She's really in her own world and always doing things that she she's always coming up with the quick fixes that make sense to her. And then in execution, they start setting off all these other consequences that you don't see coming she comes off as an introvert and she doesn't even like hugs and so it's just it's a unique character to follow and it's and they do it very well she's a mad genius so i actually was a huge fan of gravity falls um so anything that any of the creators get involved with i i'm automatically in for i I was curious to see what kind of approach uh shion was going to take with this as opposed to alex church which again both of them are involved but i was curious to see what she was going to do with this and from interviews she seems you know just as quirky and weird as he is and i was excited to see that approach to it I have complicated thoughts on Inside Job because on the one hand, 
it's funny. Like, I laugh consistently. The characters, as you mentioned, Noah, the whole, you know, kind of office gang, and this is very much kind of, you know, the office meets X-Files is the easiest way to describe it. Um, Lizzie Kaplan is great in this. Uh, she and Christian Slater have such great back and forth dynamic. Like, you really get this approach of these are two people who clearly love each other and have a familial bond, but just have no way of clearly expressing that because they are just so incredibly murked up. And that is my appropriate way of using, you know, ex- expletives. Um, and speaking of expletives, this show uses a lot of them. And it is one of the things that gets tiring a lot, which is that, you know, I feel like in a lot of adult animation things, whether it's, you know, Rick and Morty or whether it's, you know, The Prince recently, I, I feel like there is a reliance on crude humor and crude language to be like, we're adults. And I think being adult and being mature humor does not require just those things. It's funny sometimes, like the amount of F-bombs Reagan drops is kind of hilarious. But at the same time, I also think it gets a, too, a bit of ahead of itself. On the other hand, though, could not help but ask the entire time that this was a part of this, like, how much is making fun of all of this? Versus how much of this is taken at some sort of face value. Because as you get on with the series, it becomes this world building. On the one hand, it's really cool. Like with the whole Shadow Council and everything, it develops its world very well. But I couldn't help but feel on more than one occasion of like, okay, cool. When are you going to take this down a peg? Like there's a whole episode with, um, there's a whole episode in kind of taking down the whole notion of like flat earthers, which is kind of hilarious. Like it takes the whole notion of it and completely tosses it on its head in favor of the wackiness of the show. That was cool. But the lizard people stuff is just lizard people. Like, there's no, you know, subtlety to it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I also found the season's writing could be very kind of, you know, I kind of felt like every other minute is just like, let's make fun of the thing that people know. Like, let's make fun of Facebook or let's make fun of the Kardashians or, you know, the thing that people know that could very well be tied into conspiracy theory, but there's no way to prove it's not. So we're just going to use it. And I just kind of found it got really tiring after a while until you get back to the characters who are, again, fun and lighthearted and, you know, have this really cool, weird, familial dynamic to them. And I will say, I like the ending. I like the way it ends on a really cool note for part two. If, you know, it gets greenlit, I don't know if it has been yet. But again, I like the dynamic channel. I like the twists that come about. I like the characters that are involved. It's a very temperamental yes for me, but I also recognize the very weird and very complicated backstory that has led to this. That's just an interesting take. Like I, I obviously wasn't able to get to inside job, but I think that your take is interesting, Brandon, because I'm actually not a huge fan of most adult cartoons for that reason of like cursing or something's kind of out of tone. And I, I don't know, like I, it was never my style. So I'm actually really curious to know uh, more about the show and I'll give it a shot because, hey, Bob's Burgers surprised me. I ended up loving it, but I'm, I'm one of those people that shockingly doesn't follow like South Park or Simpsons or Futurama or any of those for for those exact reasons. And I would definitely say, like, watch the trailer at least or give the first episode a shot because if you can buy into that office dynamic and that kind of world building, you might actually like it despite all the other stuff. But again, it's the other stuff that gets in the way. For sure. No, no, I appreciate it. So I'll definitely check it out. And then I think then we'll move on to the next show that we have in the doc as well. So I believe, Brandon, that's all you. Yeah, I will make this uh, quick because, again, it's just a starting season. Uh, Young Justice Season 4 is here. We briefly touched upon it on our DC Fandom Recap Special, which you can tune into. Check out our Spotify and Apple Podcast feed. Uh, but it came out early, the first couple episodes. It's full-blown into Season 4 right now. We are four episodes in. And without giving too much away, I will essentially sum it up. It takes place a year after the events of Season 3. We follow uh, Connor and McGann, who are now on Mars. They're about to get married. And Garfield is with them. But He's kind of at a loss for words. He's, you know, 
he's kind of left the outsiders back on earth. He's left the team back on earth to, um, to kind of fend for themselves, so to speak. But most of the first four episodes we've seen have take place, have taken place almost entirely on Mars. And essentially this is kind of murder mystery of like the Martian King has been murdered and Connor and McGann and Garfield have to try and solve it all the while trying to reestablish, communicate back with the heroes on earth. We don't really know what's been going on in the last year with Violet or, you know, Dick or Artemis or anything like that. It's primarily focused on the Martian storyline. It's a little bit too early to tell, which is why I was hesitant to, you know, take too much time to talk about this, but I will simply say it's really good. Uh, it's not what I wanted from Young Justice Season 4 yet. Like, my whole thing with Young Justice Season 3, which I did enjoy, was that it felt more like an expansion of the DC universe in that angle that I just couldn't get behind because it was just too much happening. Like, it's new gods and magic and, you know, cryptids and everything that's all coming through at once because we can. And this feels much more streamlined. Like, it's Connor and McGann. They have to get married. There's a mystery involved, and they have to utilize their skills. And it's really good. Like, I love the way that they kind of establish Martian society in the show, because it's kind of been one of those things that we've been hinted at for three seasons now with, you know, McGann's ancestry and her connection with uh, the Martian Manhunter and everything. And here we really get it fleshed out. Like, we get to meet the prince, who's a fascinating character. We get to sort of see, like, this weird sect of Martian culture that becomes priests at a young age, which is kind of cool. Uh, we could see how the different skin colors of Martians affect, whether you're a red Martian, a green Martian, or a uh, or a white Martian. And that is, you know, it's very blatantly based on Earth racism, but it actually really works uh, quite well. Like, there's a lot of really poignant dialogue moments there and a lot of really cool stuff. There's also great stuff with uh, McGann and her family. Like, we've been, we've never met them before. And so now we actually get to see, you know, all not, not all 25 of her brothers and sisters, but like her parents and her sister and, you know, kind of how that angle of our society works. And do they approve of her marrying, you know, a half Kryptonian and Connor? Like, do they approve of, you know, Garfield as like this weird half brother that he's kind of been created as? It's all very fascinating. But again, it's a very small segment of what I want Young Justice Season 4 to be, which is put the angle back on like the original six or seven members of the team. See, you know, that kind of like youthful perspective that the original show was so great on. I know they've, you know, gotten older, obviously. I'm really impressed by this so far. I would tell you that if you've left out Young Justice Season 3, definitely go watch the last couple episodes of that to catch up. But I would say, check this out if you're at all curious. Like, this is really well done. I don't think you need that much context for Young Justice to enjoy it, aside from, you know, maybe a couple things from the earlier seasons. But yeah, this is a really well done start, and I'm frankly really excited for more. I, I think it's so interesting that they talk more about the Martians from this point of view, because I, from what little experience I have with the Marshals and like DC universe stuff, um, it's just been through the CW shows. And I think I've already mentioned that previously, but um, point is, is you know, like, oh, please remind me of Supergirl. Is it John? John? Uh, yeah. So John is a green Martian and McGann is technically a white Martian. Okay. Cause yeah, like, the two of them were such fascinating characters and that was the first time I've ever been exposed to like Martians in DC, which I know I'm a noob here, but I, I think that they're very fascinating. And even in the show, I, if I remember correctly, they experienced some form of racism as well in there too. So it, it's like, I don't know. It's just interesting to hear that they explore more of that in Young Justice. Oh, totally. And beyond the fact that it's well explored in the show, I'm glad you brought up Supergirl because they finally start exploring in season six of Supergirl recently. There was always been that elephant of room, like why Jean and McGann took the forms of Black Americans, because if you're going to society that's primarily white privileged, why would you do that? And they kind of start tackling that now. So I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, that's fascinating. Gosh, yeah. I, see, that's another show that I got to catch up on. I'm so behind on that. It, I, I it think... ends in three weeks and I'm sad. I know, I know. When I heard that it was going to stop, 
And I, I was so sad about it too, because I was very committed to the show when it first began. <laughs> and uh, somewhere I dropped off. I think it was when they were worried Lena was going to find out about uh, Kara. And I, I do know a little bit about, about what's going on now, but um, I think I left off on a finale like that. Might've been like, Lex Luthor. That was early season five. So you don't have that much to catch up on. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, because that's where I left off on. Anyways, though, that'll be it for our TV segment this week. Uh, Next, we will go on to our uh, directorial debut. So this week we cover Ava DuVernay's um, directorial debut, which was I Will Follow. So, uh, Brandon, I'll leave it to you, our expert here in in, um, recaps. I I will leave it to you. Expert is a strong word, but sure. Uh, this is uh, Ava DuVernay's first project. You guys probably know her from things, everything nowadays, whether it's, you know, Selma, Queen Sugar, uh, Wrinkle of Time, uh, When They See Us, obviously. But this was her first movie back in 2010, uh, since she'd worked in documentaries before. This is her first full-length feature. It stars Sally Richardson Whitfield, who is essentially this semi-retired makeup artist. Uh, we're not really sure at the start of the film, but she's been taking a break to care for her ill aunt who has been going through or has not been going through chemo she's refused to get chemo uh, her aunt played by uh, beverly todd she was a session drummer for a bunch of old musicians barry white um white uh, mca barry white uh the village people uh she loves you too she's a total music nerd about everything and we follow the film just recently after her aunt has passed away we follow may who is sally richardson whitfield's character as she is essentially packing up her aunt's old house and she has uh, her aunt's daughter come in, who is played by uh, Michelle White, uh, Fran and her kids. And essentially, there's this whole thing of this one day of trying to move out her aunt's house, she, um, trying to deal with her cousin, trying to deal with other people who come to the house to pay their respects, dealing with movers and just kind of going through the motions of grief and reevaluating her, uh, her past relationships and whether she should go forward in an image that her aunt has been trying to craft for her all along. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you first. Uh, how familiar were you with Ava DuVernay's work prior to this? And what did you think going back to the very beginning with I Will Follow? Honestly, I wasn't that uh, familiar with her work beforehand, which is like most of our directorial debuts, sadly. So I'm, again, glad we always do this. Um, so the only thing I was familiar with, though, um, didn't Ava also direct A Wrinkle in Time, the latest yes. Disney movie? Yeah, that's like the only thing that I have seen of hers. And so otherwise, got to brush up. I really enjoyed this, honestly. Um, there were parts of it that I felt kind of lulled, and I don't know if that was just a personal preference or not, but I thought the acting was amazing. You know, I, I want to give a shout out specifically to uh, Sally, who played May, and um, is it Michelle or McColl? McColl, who played Fran. Um, the one scene when they're talking about their aunt passing and whether or not, you know, she should have gone for chemo or whether or not it was her choice. They were like screaming at each other in that house. I thought that was such a powerful scene. That's something that stuck with me as like uh, the, the big defining scene for this movie that I won't forget. And, um, you know, any scene that the aunt was in as well was just so heartwarming. Like she brought this kind of warmth to her character that made the loss all the more, staggering for these characters and for the viewers themselves so that's something that i really appreciated here and i thought that her you know ava's direction in this movie was really really wonderful um and so overall i I just thought that it was a really interesting movie Uh, and you know i feel like comparing i will follow to a wrinkle in time is kind of very different (laughs) because of obvious aesthetics so i would just say that you could kind of see ava's touch in both of those by how she cares for her characters and especially because this is a, a, a both movies are very powerful for um you know for for 
you know, people of color. And I think that this, uh, you know, it's something that we carry on in both of these movies as well. I had watched When They See Us as well as 13, the documentary. I actually watched that uh, or over quarantine last year um, and I was a fan. So I was happy to approach Ava DuVernay's debut project. With I Will Follow, I had, I had found like, that was a point that I could attach to early on was just, this is going to be an exploration, not only of um, May's character, but of even the neighbors, even uh, people who came by to help move furniture. And they all had a short um, connection with the loved one who had passed away. And it just felt so real, I guess, because around the time of grieving, you do have those, those, those conversations with every member, you know, you have a conversation um, with the person's, um, next of kin, you have the, the conversation with the person's siblings, um, the people in their community, and you just get to you. A layer is peeled back about the kind of life this person lived, and I just found that to be very touching. I guess um, if you're looking for, you know, action in a movie like this, the most action-packed sequences are when truths are revealed between these characters who are almost like sisters, but they're cousins, and so those are the high and the low points here. It's the emotions that you feel when there are words that weren't, uh, that were left unsaid uh, when somebody passes away. So ultimately like a touching story. Um, there is like a love element that is really highlighted in the end of the movie, which I didn't find myself completely engaged with. I don't want to say out of nowhere because it does make sense why it happens. But to me, it would just felt, it didn't feel as part of the whole story. Um, but that, that's not to take any credit away from it. I think ultimately it was a, like I say, a touching story, um, about loss and what that can do to a family and the truths that you reveal when this time comes around. There wasn't anything that I was disappointed by in this film. I especially liked like the smaller conversations, like the smaller characters that were included, like her conversation with the neighbor, where she gets to see a side of her family member that wasn't always known to her. I can't underplay how big of a transition Ava DuVernay has had since this. Like, and I'll get into the film as well, but I think it cannot be understated just how much she's done since then. Like, yes, a wrinkle in time, sure, sure. But to have her own production company with Array to basically change the TV landscape in a sense with When They See Us, which I still haven't seen because I'm terrible. Um, but again, all this production work, the stuff with Queen Sugar, like she has done so, so much in the last decade to up herself from this. And that's actually not to say that I didn't like this. I actually love this. Um, it's actually the only Ava DuVernay film that I had not seen up to this point. Uh, Middle of Nowhere is a really strong film. We haven't checked that out. Some I think is tremendous and A Wrinkle in Time. Is ambitious? Sure. Um, but, you know, aside from what it is, like, I appreciate what she brings to that. For this, I really love this. And I will also bring up that, you know, for, for any of you who might know me personally, I suffered a loss in my family just almost around a year ago. And this film kind of painted a picture to me of a lot of those feelings, specifically that sense of unease, of confusion, of kind of, you know, not knowing where the next step was going to be. And I think Sally Richardson Whitfield deserves so much praise for that. She channels so much of that just sense of tiredness and that sense of sadness that comes with the loss of a loved one. And I was so impressed by how she was able to convey all of that emotion in a lot of scenes where she doesn't have a ton of dialogue or where the dialogue is not framed as that. And I was, again, just so impressed by Ava DuVernay's ability to channel Richardson Whitfield's performance to be able to do that. She is so tremendous for this. I wish she'd be nominated for an Oscar that year. But again, neither here nor there. I will agree with you, Noah, that the stuff with Amari Hardwick towards the end is kind of out of nowhere. Like, it kind of just feels like we need a nice kind of, you know, romantic subplot to kind of pop up just to, you know, bring it up to uh, to speed, I should say. 
And it doesn't really, it's not Omari Hardwick's fault. Like he's doing a fine job, but I think the rest of it just doesn't really work. But I also want to point out the visuals with this because I think about halfway in, I kind of had the thought of like, well, this looks kind of cheap. And sure enough, it was like, it was shot, I think it's like a couple days and, you know, uh, up in the California wild just for a couple days on like a very small budget. But I kind of like it because between that and the flashbacks where there's kind of this weird like lens flare sheen to it, I kind of like the idea that this is almost representative kind of like a purgatory type space where, again, you're not sure where's coming up next. And, you know, there's not really any defining features on like the trees or like the guy who walked from the other ranch, but there's, it's very isolated. I mean, you have to stay isolated in this one setting for this time with these characters. And I think that angle of it, the more I thought about it really enhances that idea of, you know, murky isolation that grief brings. And I was so impressed by the subtlety that comes with this film. Obviously, the bigger elements, like Sam, you mentioned the fight with her and uh, her cousin is great. The stuff with her and um, her nephew, Raven, that, like the whole debate they have with Nas and Jay-Z, I think is one of the most endearing elements of the movie. But there, there's so much about this film that just really, really works beyond, again, obviously that, you know, it's a woman of color directing, it's a woman uh, composing, it's two women producing. Like, it's very women and Black women, specifically heavy-centric. And I do love that about it, but I think there's so much more to it that, to be explored. So I'm really happy I got a chance to check this out. Thanks for throwing out the lunch debate, too, because I forgot about that scene. That's another perfect it's example so of how these characters, yeah, they're so likable. And it, it, I don't know, it just brings a lot of warm feelings uh, that even though the premise of the movie is really sad, it, it kind of comforts you. It really does wrap its arms around you comfortingly and so uh, i thought that that lunch scene was really fun it was just something nice to break up some of the seriousness of it and raven i think could so easily in another movie have been kind of like the the kind of out there side characters just observing anything but no they give him like actual growth and like poise to him right right yeah in ways that made the side characters almost as endearing if not more endearing (laughs) than than the leads right and also i think goes to that idea of you know grief as universal like everyone here is suffering whether they want aside from obviously the movers who are you know side characters but everyone within the immediate family is suffering to some degree and i think putting that to you know different angles and jutting that out in different angles i think so helps duvernay's vision of what this is like again the more i think about it the more i'm impressed by it yeah this was a clear example of the type of emotion duvernay is able to translate through her work um like you say brandon if this is one setting but there's so much that happens here and so much that even the camera work does that it um it leaves you feeling like you like you know the ghost story like you you are also part of the family that is aware of this this missing piece um that they that they have to like clear out so um i thought that this was an excellent debut and if you are both ready to move into your star ratings i am too this was a seven for me i i enjoyed it i would go back to it it's short and uh i think it's a a good watch for any family um who has experienced loss and also just understanding what those moments feel like. Yeah, I don't think this is quite at the level of Selma's ambition and scale. I don't think it's quite at the level of, you know, deteriorating sadness that 13th was. But this is really, really good. And I think the more, I think if you allow yourself to dive into it and allow yourself to be open to it, there's so much to watch, whether it's, you know, Sally Richardson, Woodfield's performance, whether it's DuVernay's, again, amateur, but very specific directing approach. I think there is so much to gravitate towards. And again, if you've experienced loss in any capacity or experienced grief, this will hit you like a truck. This is a nine for me. I think it's terrific. And again, Ava DuVernay is doing so much stuff nowadays. I can't wait to see what she does next, but this was a great start. And I'm really glad that you were able to connect on that personally as well. Um, And so for me, I think with my star rating, I'll I'll probably go with an eight. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Already went through my reasonings there. And so would definitely recommend to anybody. 
And uh, I Will Follow is available on Netflix right now alongside, I think, all of Ava DuVernay's projects, actually. So yeah, go check that out there. It is also on VOD if you are curious. That being said, uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode 11 of Plot Devices. Again, we've made it to our Halloween non-special, which apparently was a little bit spookier than we thought. While you're here, uh, check out our Spotify and Apple Podcast page at Plot Devices. That's Spotify and Apple Podcast at Plot Devices. Check out our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. We're always putting on weird stuff there. Uh, I want to thank our co-hosts for today, Samantha and Corvaya, who is laughing at my blooper from earlier, which you will never hear. Sam, where can, you find, <laughs> where can the people find you online? Uh, people could find me everywhere online. Uh, no, just kidding. You could follow me on uh, Twitter at S underscore Incorvaya or on Instagram at Sam I am 520. So coming up with the next episode, we'll be talking about Eternals, which I just saw. And so I'm so excited for everyone to see Eternals and um, for us to talk about it in the next episode. So yeah, as always, good stuff coming up. Yes, I'm sure we'll discuss the Rotten Tomatoes controversy, whatever that is worth. But I, hope, but I, <laughs> I can't get enough of that. I, I seriously can't. I don't know if I even saw the same movies as these people. But anyways. <laughs> oh, yeah. Next week will be a trip. Uh, Noah Guzman also joining us. Are you excited for our five movies next week? And if so, where can the people find you online? Yes. Next week is going to be so packed. I'm ready for it. I've got to make sure I watch at least three of those because we're going to be having a jam-packed review session. Eternals is high on my mind. So that will be uh, a priority for me for the next week. But um, I've delivered the Antlers review here. Uh, I am going to type something up for the Odyssey online. And so that will come out next week. But I think that's it. You can find me at Twitter. Um, I am at Noah's Plotting. And please give our Twitter, Twitter profile some mentions. Let us know what your favorite uh, debut project is if we haven't covered a, a director that you um, that you're a fan of. Yes, please. If there's any that you want to comment and let us know, please. We have our list, but we are obviously open to more, as long as it's available in some capacity online, because we don't all have access to the same physical media. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band, Killbox underscore music. Uh, check me out on the latest episodes of uh, No Capes Required at Zero Capes Required on Twitter and Instagram. And my newest review will be on Joanna Hogg's uh, long-anticipated sequel to Souvenir Part 2. I cannot wait to check that out. That'll be interesting. Check that out on ASU Odyssey as well. We'll hopefully be talking about that on the next show as well. From myself, from Noah Guzman, from Samantha and Corbaya, this has been Plot Devices. Happy Halloween, and we will see you guys next time.